Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. <laughs> Those of you watching online, good morning to you. Before I begin, I thank the pastors who gave me a break. And I was worried they'd do too good of a job. I'm still a little worried. <clears throat> so, again, thank you, Lord, for those men. We are in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 16. We'll take verses 1 through 11. The title of this morning's message is Never Before. A lot of emotions flying around in this chapter. <clears throat> we'll stand and read the word in one moment. It's okay to have uh, feelings, of course, except when you go to the dentist. Uh, but uh, when you worship, when we sing songs, it is okay to let the feelings get involved. Well, let's stand for the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1 of the gospel according to Mark, chapter 16. We'll take it to verse 11. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Please be seated. Never before, with all of the struggles that we come across in Scripture, never before, had humans felt this low and as, as these disciples felt on this day, and particularly the 11 apostles. Jesus, of course, had breathed his last on the cross and was buried. And what happened next? What happened after that? It's a very important uh, question for us to not only answer to those who are unbelieving, but to bring up so that we can answer it for those who are unbelieving. The events of that resurrection morning that we are considering here, they unfolded with, with such rapidity and awe that the gospel writers, they struggled to document the sequence of events as, as they were happening. It was sort of like the news was coming in too quickly. There were just so many things taking place internally and externally uh, at, at one time. 
And nothing about this uh, resurrection is casual. All of it is miraculous. It's not something that you can uh, really explain or uh, accept without the help of God himself. It is so outside of the human experience. And over the years, I've worked on putting together uh, a sequence, a likely sequence of events, and I'm going to share that with you. And I'm not saying that it is perfect, though it might be. There is that possibility. But it is uh, the best I can do. Of course, I've read many others, and I'm I'm more comfortable with mine. And so here it is. Uh, Of course, an angel, after the Lord rises from the dead, an angel rolls back the stone, and he sits atop of that stone, incidentally, which you've got to think, they've got a sense of humor. Uh, But he sits atop of the stone while the Roman guards were petrified and in awe. Now, I'm not ex- going to be, try to be precise with the time, but I'm going to use it so we have some point of reference. So about 5 a.m. that Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome and other women, Luke mentions Joanna also, uh, they head out toward the tomb, uh, presumably coming out of Jerusalem. Uh, so they set out for the tomb. It is still dark when they set out. By the time they arrived, the sun had risen. Mary Magdalene evidently hurries ahead of the women who are carrying spices and uh, things to uh, further anoint the body of Christ. And so that would slow them down a little bit. There, clearly, there were alternative, uh, alter, alternate routes to the tomb from Jerusalem and from wherever else surrounding Jerusalem, for example, Bethany. And so Mary hurries ahead of the women, so excited she was. She couldn't wait to get there, even in her grief. It is just her way of showing her love. And she finds the tomb open, but she doesn't go inside and she doesn't engage anyone, not yet. Uh, Mary's use of the pronoun we when she goes and tells the disciples that the Lord is risen may not be in sequence, but it also might be. Again, the information came in so quickly with so much uh, feeling that it is difficult to take all the Gospels and line it up and be precise. But there are no contradictions. Uh, There are so much room for this and that to make total sense. Well, about 5.30, the other women arrive, and by this time, as mentioned, the sun was up. And the women, they are invited to enter the tomb to see that it is indeed empty, and they're invited, of course, by one of the two angels that are reported to be there. And they saw two angels. Uh, Mark will concentrate on just the one that spoke. And these angels, these messengers, these angelic beings... Uh, they deliver a message. He's not here, and go tell his disciples uh, that he is risen, and just as he said, and that he'll meet them and uh, see them in Galilee. Now, he's not limiting it to Galilee, but that is where he is going to see them at, one, at some point. And so Mary, she's already headed back to tell Peter and John. These ladies are now going to head back also to tell Peter and John and the apostles. Before 6 a.m., 
the apostles are told by Mary Magdalene, and they initially are skeptical of her report. It's too good to be true. Remember, they were in extreme grief. As we just stood in red, we noticed that they were still weeping uh, three days later. Well, uh, Mary, she tells them, and they decide they're going to investigate. And they're pretty excited when they decide, you know, I'm going to look into this. They start running to the tomb. Of course, as we always mention, John is very careful to point out that he outran Peter. And he arrives, of course, first. He stoops. He looks in the tomb. Peter comes up. <laughs> Peter is Peter. And he goes into in the tomb. And uh, as Mary will be the first to see the risen Lord, John, the apostle, was the first one to believe that he was risen. And he did that without seeing the Lord. Well, uh, Mary follows them. They return back to where they came from, and she lingers. She remains uh, by, in the garden tomb area. And uh, uh, as she lingers there, of course, she looks in the tomb that, at this point, and she dialogues with the angels. She's not really interested in these angels, nor were the other women, which I find very fascinating. Uh, I, I would think that if I had encountered an angel, I'd have a lot of questions so, you know, how do you like your steak? Um, just so many questions to ask him. Who does your laundry? I, I mean, well, anyway, uh, these women, are they're not interested in angels. They're interested in Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior. And that comes out very clear in, as you read the story because you say, well, what would I do? Well, if I felt about Jesus the way I feel about Jesus, I'd be looking for him. And nobody else would, would substitute well, she looks in the tomb, of course, and <clears throat> that is when she turns around. She supposes Christ is the gardener uh, tending the garden, which incidentally is sort of a, an indication that the garden of Joseph of Arimathea was well manicured, that there, there was expected to be a gardener there. And <clears throat> this, um, uh, so anyway, she thinks it's the gardener, of course, and then when she hears her name said from the lips of Jesus, as only he can say it, she knew that it was him. Well, as that is taking place with her, around 6.30, uh, this is going on. She, of course, of course, is the first to see him risen. The other women, as they're heading back to tell the apostles, they must have taken separate routes, and this is why they don't cross paths. Christ shows up to them, and appears to them, and shows himself risen to the other women as they were heading to tell the apostles that the tomb was empty. And uh, uh, so this resurrection is very important to us to this day, and I'm going to cover a few of these post-resurrection appearances of Christ, just a few of them. Peter saw him risen personally, one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Uh, the two disciples that were heading to the town of Emmaus they saw him, they walked with him, and they realized it was Christ. The ten disciples will then, then see Christ uh, after the two come back to Jerusalem to tell them that they saw Christ. You see, when you've seen the risen Christ, you have something to say to people. You have something that's urgent, you have something that's exciting. And this is what was taking place that morning. Well, a week later, Christ again appears... This time, it's not to the ten disciples, it's to the eleven. Thomas was the missing man at his first appearance. Well, Thomas is present at the second appearance. 
Then, by the time they get up to Galilee, over 500 believers, because a great many believers were up in Galilee, uh, they will see him risen. James, the eldest son of Joseph and Mary, uh, she, uh, James will see the risen Lord. Cannot leave out Stephen. We must not leave out Stephen, who saw the Lord risen as Stephen was dying. Paul saw him apparently at least three times, and that's in Acts chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 23. John, the apostle, again sees him decades later there on the Isle of Patmos, as we're told in Revelation 117. Now, the purpose of, of Bible study is not to just give us information so that we can know about the Bible. Uh, that would be a mistake if that is as far as it went. We take this as ammunition or nutrients to do something with for the kingdom. It is supposed to edify, to build up, to make stronger, to change us in some way. And this is a lifelong process. Uh, the, uh, there is in the book of Acts this unceasing emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what the first Christians occupied their preaching with, the resurrection of Christ. I think we're supposed to still do this. It is miraculous. And uh, who else has this message? Early in the church, while the apostles were still alive, false teachers entered the pulpits in churches and began to attack the resurrection. This is why we have the, many of the writings in the New Testament to counter their lies, even uh, in such passages as 1 Corinthians 15. And there, Paul includes these statements about the resurrection, such as, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Uh, well, he's saying these things, again, to counter those who are sent from hell to destroy the message of God to sinners. That Christ Jesus not only died for sinners, to uh, save them from the judgment of their sins, to change their lives, to have a plan for their life. This is the truth in these things. Not all the truth, but it is truth in it. And may we not leave out that part about the resurrection. It's not up to, up to us to say, well, I might lose them if I preach. No! We might save them if we preach a risen Christ. He's not on a crucifix. That is wrong. He is alive. And he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And he intercedes for you and me, not with words, but by what he has done. The sacrificial death on the cross. Well, many sinful theories have been invented over the centuries to this present day. They're being invented and repeated to explain away the empty tomb. And they are ridiculous. Uh, but we're not going to take uh, much time on that. Uh, but to view the scripture as a myth is to put oneself in control of not only the facts in one's mind, the history, and its lessons. Uh, you can get away with that for one lifetime. But it is not going to allow the skeptic to put themselves in control of the judgments that God is very serious about, such as illustrated in the life of a man named Lot and his sons-in-law. 
We picked this up in Genesis 19. There the two angels have entered into San Francisco, I mean, uh, to uh, <laughs> Sodom. And, uh, well, they knew it was Sodom. They saw the six-colored flag, and they said, well, that should have seven. That got that wrong, too. But anyway, um, uh, and that's not hateful speech. What would be hateful speech is telling you, no, you can go ahead and sin like a Sodomite and still expect to enter into heaven. That would be hate speech. Uh, truth speech is out of love. Uh, you know, uh, you like it or lump it, you, you, you're going to face it. Well, the angels are sent, and they say it a lot. We can't destroy this place until the righteous have been taken out. Do you have any other family than, other than those under your roof who you need to, to help get out? And he says, oh, I've got my son-in-law. So here we pick it up, Genesis 19, verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up and get out of this place, for Yahweh will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. They scoffed at him. What kind of witness did Lot lack? Whereas when he spoke about serious things, no one took him seriously. Well, we then read a few verses later, verse 28, Then Abraham looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. See, the judgment came. Whether they laughed at it or not, it was coming. And to try to toy with the resurrection and the truths of Scripture because you don't care for them is to seal your own eternal fate. And thus the message of the gospel, the good news is you don't have to perish. The world, the world thinks that the gospel writers have no right to tell history, to be honest and give the truth. They're not accredited by the world. And again, that's where we come in. No matter what you're struggling with in your life, no matter what sin you're facing, no matter what hard times you're facing, you are still required to preach the gospel when you are given a chance to preach the gospel. You do not get out of preaching because of your pain. You're still in it. You identify totally with those who are under the curse in the midst of pain and yet still preaching the truth. Well, with that introduction, we can start the timer. <laughs> Verse 1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Now, this Sabbath, of course, uh, is over. Their Sabbath ran from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. <clears throat> this is our Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, as mentioned, you know, she was demonically possessed. She, she was, her, you know, the Lord delivered her. In verse 9, it comes out again. But anyway, Mary, the mother of James. This is James known as James the Less. Not a very flattering title, right? If you, I don't want to be known as James the Less. But anyway, it was, uh, he's one of the 12 disciples. And it, is, it uses to distinguish him from James, the brother of, of John. And uh, he did not take it as an insult, nor is it intended to be. There was nothing uptight about this distinction for him. He may have even been flattered. Anyway, this name James, of course, comes from uh, the, the, by way of the Greek. 
Jacobus, and in, from the Hebrew Jacob, it's a, a, a variant of, of Jacob. And uh, Salome, the one who, one of the ladies who also witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, um, is, is also present. They bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Well, they did not believe that he would rise again. They did not believe that he was already risen. Otherwise, they would not come with these uh, perfumes to, for the body. And, and incidentally, Nicodemus, you know, he came with 100 pounds of spices. That, that was sufficient. That was an adequate amount to care for the body. But they wanted to do their part. They wanted to express their love nonetheless. In the book of Acts, speaking of the resurrection... Just this one little short line from Acts chapter 13. This is the chapter where the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work of ministry. And just a a very beautiful chapter. But uh, there we read, But he, that is the Christ, whom God raised up, saw no corruption. His body did not decay. There was no need for any of these spices, whether they were from Nicodemus or the women. They They were a waste of material things, you could, you could say, but it was an expression of love and therefore not a waste. Love compelled these women to do more as love still compels us to serve Christ. Uh, but again, none of the believers or followers of Jesus Christ, not one of them, expected him to rise up from the dead. Verse 2 Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Again, an eagerness. They couldn't wait to get there. They probably did not sleep well that night. Uh, As evidenced in Mary Magdalene to me, just running ahead of the women. You guys are walking too slow. I'll meet you at the tomb. And she takes off. She must have been younger than, than some of the ladies and spry and just had to get there. And you you have to admire that as a believer. And contrast that if you were once living in the world, you did not run to the things of Christ. But now that you are a believer, things have changed. Well, they still loved him like no other. They came looking and prepared for a dead man who was not going to be there. Their understanding had fallen short, not knowing the scriptures, not listening to Christ, And yet they still had this love. It makes me stop and think when I read about this story and ask myself, am I missing something from the scripture in my own life? All of these heard him preach this. They knew the prophets had spoken about these things and they missed it in a big way. Am I doing the same thing? On the first day of the week, little did they know that from this point forward, The first day of the week would replace Sabbath or Saturday worship for us. Sabbath does not mean Saturday. It means rest, but it takes place on our Saturday. And it's uh, disappointing to see that there are still still some uh, Sabbatarians out there that, uh, you know, when a Christian confuses their role as a New Testament believer and the life in the Old Testament... It, every, all, a lot of stuff gets out of whack. It's just, you know, and you tend to become legalistic and, or prone to legalism versus grace. We are New Testament believers. Ministers of the New Covenant, said Paul. 
And we, that does not diminish the Old Testament. That, that strengthens it. And Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Well, the fulfillment of that law is what we call the New Testament theology. And, uh, you know, Jesus does not have to itemize and say, well, I'm against, uh, you know, um, stealing and I'm against uh, sexual perversity. He doesn't have to itemize it. When he says, think not that I've come to, uh, uh, don't think that I've come to destroy the law, means that he is upholding the moral teachings, the commandments of God. Which one? All of them. And some of them are certainly developed uh, by Christ and his work. And one of them is, is the replacement of Sabbath worship with what we uh, do on Sundays. It's not a sin to do it on a Saturday, but this is why we do it on a Sunday. It's because this is the day the Lord showed himself risen and the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of, for example, is now fulfilled. And so believers, we rest not in a Sabbath, but in a Savior. That's what Paul was trying to tell the church in Hebrews chapter 4. There remains a rest for the people of God. It is, it is Christ, the Savior. And uh, we, it, there, these distinctions are to be stark in our lives. Well, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Someone felt, and of course it is the writers and the people who told the story, that this was worth repeating. And you picture it. You, they set out it's dark. They don't have flashlights. They may have lamps or torches with them. Uh, but uh, here they, they get to the, the, to the tomb, the, 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 the group of women. And there may actually have been two separate groups of women that left uh, from wherever they, they, they uh, originated from. There's space for that. But... Uh, they get there and the sun is rising. And of course, we see that in artwork sometimes. We see this, you know, the empty tomb and the sun is rising. And it strikes us and it evidently struck them also. And that's why it is pointed out. In verse 3, And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Well, expecting to find Jesus dead and in the grave. Uh, the door was uh, a very big obstacle for these women. They didn't think about that earlier. Uh, the door of the tomb was a very heavy stone wheel that was rolled uh, over the, the opening. It was put in a groove, and the groove rolled downhill, so you, you well, at least pitched downwardly, so you could, you know, easily roll it sh- shut. It would take more effort, and it would take a few strong men to roll it back open. And so they had a valid concern. Um, It's much easier to close that tomb door than it is to open it. It's much easier to die than it is to rise again. I guess you could say that. But um, this was a real concern. Why were they not concerned about the Roman guards and the seal of Pilate, the governor, on the tomb? Well, they either did not know that these orders had been given, which is likely what happened, or they lost sight of it, or they just dismissed it. But uh, that is easy to understand why that would not have been a concern. This resurrection, as we know, the greatest miracle known to man, not only because Christ got up from the grave uh, without the help of any human being, but also what, uh, what it means to, to this very moment. 
But it was also the most painful of all miracles in, in, that has ever been. In verse 4, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. For it was very large. And so there's the emphasis. But when they looked up and they saw it was rolled away, well, what did they say? Sweet. Um, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Uh, this is one of the most powerful beginnings of a sentence that uh, we can have. But when they looked up, we Christians try to get unbelievers to look up, to see the Lord. That disjunctive, but when they looked up. Well, that means there's a continuation. There's a stone blocking it, but... Then, when they did this, that appointed moment, they, it's personal, each one, they looked, it's practical, and they looked up. Uh, Those things don't mean anything to the unsaved. They mean so much to us. You look at these things, and you you have your devotional times, and you're just plodding along, rereading a section of Scripture, and all of a sudden, something like this jumps out. But when they looked up, And maybe you've been going through some struggle in your life and you've not been looking up. You've been fighting these things by looking straight ahead. The horizontal view, not the vertical. And then this verse can strike you and say, but they looked up. And then you begin to look up. I'm looking up to the Lord. Uh, As you roll forward in your faith and develop and mature, don't forget what Paul told the Galatians. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Having looked up to God and depending upon uh, him, are you now developing in your walk without him by looking at each other or something else? Absolutely not. Having begun in the spirit, we continue forward in our faith, dependent upon the Holy Spirit and this relationship we have with Christ. And it is so easy to become you know, sort of Christians, get Christian savvy. Well, you know, I know how to do this, I'm a Christian. And you you lose that sense of looking up and dependency. And where does that put you? Well, one place it puts, at least me, is I can say sometimes about a trouble in front of me, I don't care. I don't care. God's got this. And whatever he's going to do, he's going to do out of love. And I believe that. And I'm not going to let me or anybody else take that away. I'm going to trust the Lord. Because having begun in the Spirit, I will be perfected in the Spirit. And uh, this is, uh, to me, as I read this, it struck me. But when they looked up. Now you say, maybe you're making a little bit more out of that than what should be. No way. Anyway, continuing on in this. Uh, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. Problem solved. Still, no thought of the resurrection, though. Again, does that not a, is it not a lesson in that for us? They're coming to anoint a dead body, and the tomb is open as they are solving one problem, and they're still not thinking that maybe he is alive. The angel who rolled the stone away He did so not to let Jesus out, but to let witnesses in. He said, let's roll this. He could have just left it shut and Jesus could have appeared. Well, you know, wow, he's alive. He didn't really have to have an open tomb, but he did. I prefer this way because he preferred this way. 
And so, not to let Jesus out, but to let witnesses in. That's why the stone is rolled back. And the wise guy angel is sitting on top of it, right there in front of the Roman guards. It's comical. Now, the earth shook when the angel rolled the stone away. Matthew 28, verse 2. There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. (laughs) Well, did the ladies feel the earthquake? No, it had happened. It was likely local to that spot. Well, you say, well, how could anybody have known? Well, maybe others did know, and they put the pieces together. Or the Roman soldiers, (laughs) they told the story. You think that was the end of it? You, You just don't shut up. If you've ever experienced something phenomenal, you talk about it for the rest of your life from time to time. It just doesn't go away. Uh, I still, I remember seeing a car get broadsided at a stoplight and do a, a, a complete 360 in the air and land on its tires. And it just, just below the elevated train, I mean inches away from hitting it. And, and everybody was fine. In 15 minutes, it was all gone. Everybody you know, swapped insurance cards, got back in their cars and rolled away. Uh, But you had to see it. It's like, this is crazy. Um, Well, anyway, I don't think the Roman soldiers just had this experience and then forgot about it over, you know, a cheeseburger or something later on in life. I think that they spoke about these things, and I think sensitive ears of Christians picked them up. And uh, Luke, of course, when he does his gospel, it opens up that he, uh, he really investigated what he had to write before he wrote it down for us. Anyway, uh, uh, verse 5 now, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. The the angelic messenger uh, from another dimension, the spiritual realm, of course, um, Again, they're not too occupied with this. How could you be? It would be taking away from the centerpiece of Jesus Christ to be too caught up with what the angels were doing. doing, uh, Or doing, for again, for my Brooklyn friends. But uh, Luke, he, um, he mentions that there were two, but Mark concentrates or concerns himself only with the one who spoke. And they were alarmed at the presence of the angel. Um, this this whole thing. The Greek word there for alarmed, ekthambio, which you won't hear every day, uh, greatly amazed, sort of, you know, amazed like never before. And that is the Greek word used there for alarm, verse 6. And that comes back into the story. And that's why I pointed out. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. Do not be blown away. That's what, to him, this is casual. <laughs> this is Christ. He's not here. What's the big deal? He's God. Uh, but anyway, he says, do not be ekthambio. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? So he says to them, don't be utterly amazed at something that is utterly amazing. Astonished. Utter wonder. But Mark add, uh, Matthew adds this. He says, this is not a fear, a terror fear. There's a fear involved, but it is a fear with joy. Matthew chapter 28, verse 8. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy 
and ran to bring his disciples' word. Now, Matthew uses the word fear, and it is where we get our English word phobia from. And it is fear. But it is a fear that has a joy attached to it. They know something's going on. They know this is spiritual. They don't know what. And they don't know where to go with this. It's so exciting. Where on the scale of excitement would the needle read with these women at this point? And the angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And let's make no mistake, he's saying. Let's get the identity right. This is the Christ that you saw on the cross three days ago. He's up. He's risen. He's not here. And this angel, well, angels announced the birth of Christ. They announced the uh, resurrection of Christ. In Acts chapter 1, they will say that this same Jesus that you see taken up will return in like manner. They will announce his return uh, prophetically. See the place where they laid him. And so he invites the women to come in to the tomb, which they do to look in. And there was the evidence of the grave clothes and the headpiece in a separate place, which impressed John the Apostle very much, and he writes about that in his account of this story. After all, John looked in also. And uh, no doubt about it, the Lord was risen. Right through those spice-soaked clothes, he just came right through them. This was a spiritual deal. And uh, Mary, again, she's already telling the apostles this, she supposed robbers, because she didn't look in the first time. And she at first thought, uh, even later, she thought robbers. Where have they taken him? They've taken the body of the Lord. She says to the supposed gardener, if you tell me where he is, I'll go get him. And uh, yeah, so, the, the man, what a morning. Verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Now, verses 6 and 7 announce the crucifixion and the, re- the, the resurrection together, and we must, I think, be careful to do that. But the Lord does not forget to start rebuilding Peter, and he's going to finish that job. And Jesus knew that he, the, the best of men are molded by failure. Um, I'm pretty moldy myself, uh, but it is true. Failure, it, it, it can mold us if you let it. Or you can you cannot let it, and you can waste it, or you can get back. I mean, if you fail and you say that's it, I quit. Then that's it. But if you get back in there, uh, that's where work gets done. He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. And so these, you know, he's telling the disciples that he wants them to go to Galilee, but they're going to be slow in doing that. Surprise. Uh, uh, they're going to be almost reluctant to get back up to Galilee. I mean, it's a week later, and he's still appearing to them when Thomas was with them uh, in, in the vicinity of the cross. That was ground zero. And so he's, he's trying to nudge them back up. Where There are more followers there, and there's less uh, combatants in Galilee than there was in Jerusalem. So it's a practical thing. 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 15 that he appeared to 500 at one time, and, and that would be more than likely be majority of people from Galilee. Verse 8, So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Good that they didn't have cars. Could you imagine with that excitement? It would be like the demolition derby. 
Uh, anyway, uh, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Greek word there, phobio, from where we get phobia from, uh, means fear. And that's what they were. But Matthew has told us, yeah, but this fear included joy. Mark just doesn't put that in. And uh, there has been a lot of effort by Bible scholars to insist that verse 8 ends the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's a frenzy defense, I think, which is a condemnation of their argument when you get all excited about something you're trying to insist upon without facts. I do not believe them. Thank God it's not all the scholars, but there are many that are otherwise good scholars, and they'll say the Gospel of Mark closes with chapter 8. I want to talk about that just a little bit, but not too much. They do this because they think that older manuscripts from ancient Egypt, or Egypt in the days uh, not long after the apostles, about 300 uh, years after the birth of Christ, they think that because those manuscripts are the oldest manuscripts, that they are therefore the best manuscripts. But that is not the case. They think because they're older, they're therefore trustworthy. They think that because these older manuscripts don't carry Mark chapter uh, 16, verses 9 through 20 in it, that therefore somebody added them later. But there's a great amount of evidence to disprove that. Irenaeus, an early church leader, who wrote before those old manuscripts were written, he quotes Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 19. So he is who came before, he came before those older manuscripts, and he's quoting this section that they said Mark didn't write as being written from Mark. You can read that and if you want to do some research in Irenaeus against heresies. Book 3, verse 10, section 5. And he's not the only one. There are other uh, church fathers that... Uh, Justin Martyr, for example, who came even before Irenaeus. Uh, and, 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 and there are others. So I don't believe the Holy Spirit concluded the gospel of good news of Mark with the disciples in fear. That they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. End of story. I don't believe that. It doesn't make any sense. I conclude that Mark's gospel concludes with verse 20 which says, And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. And so again, I strongly disagree. I don't care how uh, f much formal training they have. You know, scholars can indoctrinate other scholars. That happens in seminaries and universities. Uh, not just the liberals do this. And uh, that's why you bring your Bibles to church. So you can say, boy, he's right again. Um, but to, to slow down indoctrination, you have your Bibles open. Your students yourself. Your scholars yourselves. And uh, the only thing this doctrine, if you're not even a doctrine, this position that Mark 8 is the end and everything else was added by somebody else, well, the only thing that has brought to Christianity is doubt. It has not improved anything. Uh, this is one reason why I don't care for the NIV. Well, there's a lot of reasons why I don't care for the NIV. Uh, 
translation or the NASB is a lot of those that use this Alexandrian source from Alexandria, Egypt, these ancient manuscripts and some other ones. I don't like their source. I'd rather go with those who use the source material from Syria where uh, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and others uh, were. And there was less, far less of a Gnostic influence in that part of the world in early Christianity. And I think that the protest comes from scholars. I hope I didn't lose you on this. This is important stuff because you read in your Bible and you get this little footnote, you know, older manuscripts stop here. What does that mean? Well, we found better stuff and it doesn't have the rest what you're going to read. No, it does not. You're lucky I don't know where you live. (laughs) He said, you just put doubt in the church for what? Now, no, no great doctrine is lost by either view, but still they're wrong. And, um, after, okay, so where, why? Why is this? I, I strongly feel that the protest against these verses largely stems from the mention of the sign gifts in verses 17 and 18. A lot of scholars don't want the sign gifts. They don't want to believe that people can still speak in tongues, that there can be healings. They don't want to believe this stuff. And you, you can't almost fault them because of the abuses of these things. I mean, you think those, are, those sprinkler heads, you think they're for fire suppression? They're to shut down anybody that stands up speaking tongues while I'm preaching before I can get to them. I mean, this is unbiblical to interrupt the teaching of the word of God because you feel you've got something to say nobody else can understand. Ooh, look at me. That's abusive. And it's rampant in Christianity and it's been for some time. But that's no reason to say, okay, um, let's get rid of all the sign gifts, which is what I think many of these scholars do. I am not a cessationist. I believe in the gifts, but I do know for a fact that since the fall of Jerusalem, the gifts have greatly diminished, and they're not centralized. Uh, A church that says we're a healing church, I think is very disappointing. I mean, if, if that was the case, you need to go down and empty out the hospitals. Don't withhold it. Let it go, brother. Um, just, uh, I, I believe people can heal. I believe people speak in tongues and give interpretation. But I just don't believe that the Holy Spirit hands these things out like chiclets. He's not a, you know, a Pez dispenser. And you just push on it and out pops the, the treat. And many have treated it this way. And I also think this is one reason why many churches are afraid to do the book of Acts. Because then they have to deal with this. And I'm looking forward. I can't wait to do the book of Acts. I'll also add, in places like Iran, or I walk. Um, there's got to be a flea. How do, you be, how do you run before you walk? Anyway, uh, they don't have the scripture like we have it. Parts of, other parts of the world, China, North Korea. Do I think that the Holy Spirit would have to to reach people that he would indeed uh, give sign gifts? Absolutely. Because I don't see them doesn't mean they're not happening. Uh, But he doesn't do these things to wow us. He does these things to fight back the work of the devil. And uh, again, we'll come that. When Jesus said, you know, you shall receive power to be my witnesses, not my entertainers, not my performers. It is the word, it is truth that we have been entrusted with. 
And we see that the disciples did not believe in the resurrection because they didn't believe the scripture or know the scripture well enough. And we'll come to that in a minute. We need to speed up because somebody pushed the timer. Anyway, uh, so coming back to this, uh, I think it takes more effort to try to explain away Mark verses 9 through 20 than it does to receive them. And uh, there's no purpose in it. There's nothing inside these verses that would make us go, oh, I sure wish he didn't say that. Anyway, be careful of, uh, listen, we, we benefit greatly from intelligent scholars. But many times they can go kooky. And you just got to watch. It's like everything else. Um, verse 9. Now, I hope I communicate. I get excited. I get animated, you know, and I read somebody that I like, and he says, these verses are not an older man. <laughs> like, why do you got to say that? You believe that, and you're wrong, and you know you're wrong. So I have to be calm, because people seem to understand better when you speak like this. Anyway. Verse 9, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Okay, she is the first one. So the Holy Spirit, the, the perfect Holy Spirit response to these verses on in there uh, is, I know, I shouldn't do that. I should not. I'm not sorry, but somehow I shouldn't do it. Anyway, uh, his perfect response is that the kingdom power was fully at work. You say they, they stopped in fear? I say the Holy Spirit cast out demons. That's how he picks up verse 9. So if you read that, well, they were all afraid. And they didn't say anything to anybody. And then it's like the Holy Spirit comes and says, yeah, but remember, Mary, she had seven demons, and I blew them out of and, and so this is how the gospel continues. And I, I love it. Uh, verse 10, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. She wasted no time, as we, we said. Here it is, three days later, they're mourning and they're weeping. Never before had these men felt this low. This was different from all the sorrows in the scripture. This was different. All his followers thought he was dead and gone. And what about all of his work? What about all those years and times we spent with him? His, his care for us. What about all of this? It comes crashing down on them. Um, he was far more than a beloved rabbi to these people. He was their Lord, their God. He was their Christ. He was just everything that they had hoped for, and now uh, life had been smothered out of, of them too. Tomorrow held no appeal for these men. They were weeping and crying. They were just nothing more they could do with themselves. Verse 11, And when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they did not believe. Well, as in verse 13, when the men come and bring the news, at first they're not going to believe them either. So this is not just a gender thing. Well, they're, you know, they're just women dreaming. They didn't believe the men either. This is how um, devastated they were. And, uh, it, you know, it's, for these men, it was not possible for them to believe something just because they wanted to believe it. What a lesson for us. 
as we come to the scripture, just because we want to believe something is not enough. Uh, we, we have a foundation. There's something very real for the, behind the reasons that we, we have faith. And so we, we are taught this. Peter, you know, Peter says, give them a reason for the hope that is in you. It is not this just, you know, mindless rush to believe something that we want to believe. However, just because we want to believe it doesn't mean it's not true. It could be very true. We embrace it. Well, everything was lost. Fate had beaten them. That's how they felt. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. This is, a, this is a point that is emphasized in the Old Testament and the New. That it is truth through revelation that forms our foundation. And not truth through speculation or emotions. And those who go to a church and says, yeah, but you know, it was dull. Well, was the preaching right? That's the standard. Who cares if you think you wanted to be entertained? Was the truth Spoken, because that's what hell hates. Hell hates them when the truth is spoken and looks to do something about it. And may we not assist hell in doing this very thing. And the only ones who seem to have remembered that Jesus said that he would rise again in three days were the very men who had him crucified. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 23. The, the chief priests and the Pharisees saying... To Pilate, sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. How come the apostles didn't get it? How come they didn't apply this to the, their life? How come we can find unbelievers who are more pleasant to be around than believers sometimes? That shouldn't be. So as with us, the believers then had a lot of Bible work to do. And when we get to the book of Acts, we see Peter is moving with Scripture. He's quoting Scripture and applying it, and he is up in the face of the devil. And we'll close with this verse, Luke 24, verse 45. This is after the resurrection of Christ. He's still on earth before the ascension, ministering to his men. And, he, and Luke writes, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scripture. Why does Satan come along and say, you got to doubt that that was put in the Bible by Mark? Well, what else can I doubt Satan in the Scripture? I won't listen to him. I will know the Scripture because the Holy Spirit will guide me through it. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, your truth is so attractive. It is so wonderful to those who have been born again. Not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. We're very grateful. And we pray that we would be very diligent in pursuit of Christian perfection. We thank you for your kindness towards us. You're so patient and so gracious. We ask that that would not only flow into us, but through us also. If you've been listening online or here in the sanctuary and or the church building and you've never opened your heart to Christ, you have an opportunity now. And we make these invitations because it is not uncommon that God himself will work 
in the heart of an unbeliever through the preaching of his word. And the Lord says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if you'd like to open your heart up to God because you have sensed your sin in his presence, you have sensed that he is right and you are wrong without him, well, you can join. You can come up and be a friend of Christ and be saved and be under his lordship. If you make this prayer in earnest, Christ will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I admit it. I confess it right here. I have broken your laws. And I ask you to forgive me. There is no one else who is good enough and great enough. There's no one else who died for me in my place to take my punishment. And I come to you, Lord Jesus. And I ask that you would not only forgive me, but also receive me. And I ask that from this day forward, you would be my Savior and my Lord. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer in earnest, may they not be ashamed of it. And when invited to, may they come up and share their confession with one of the pastors. If they're watching online, may they call the church and ask to speak with the pastor. And these things we commit to you in Jesus' name. Amen.